Welcome to Airtime. I'm Pat Fox on the board of Arts Incubator of Richardson, AIR, and I'd like to welcome you to this 10th season of Airtime from Arts Incubator. Airtime is an artist interview series held live on the stage of Alamo Drafthouse in Richardson, Texas. Podcasts of past interviews are available on YouTube. Tonight's guest artist is one of my favorites, storyteller Elizabeth Ellis, who will be interviewed by David Fisher. Designated an American masterpiece touring artist by the NEA, Elizabeth grew up in the Appalachian Mountains hearing stories from her grandfather, a mountain minister. The Divine Miss E is a versatile and riveting teller of Appalachian and Texas tales and stories of heroic American women. She is an award-winning author and also the recipient of the John Henry Falk Award from the Tejas Storytelling Association. Welcome. Good evening. Thank you, everyone, for being here uh, for the second half of my word, season 10 of Airtime. I hope all of your holidays were wonderful, and we are glad to see you back for this spring season of Airtime. As uh, Pat said, um, our guest this evening is Miss Elizabeth Ellis. Will you please give her a warm welcome? It is February 11th, 2020. So uh, I, was going to, I was going to start out with the, or I rather I usually start out with the tell us a little bit about yourself and how you, I was going to say, tell us about yourself. and That's you, really dangerous. <laughs> you should never ask a storyteller to start talking. Correct, correct. Could be here a while. They'd have to send out for more food. <laughs> and uh, I was going to say, how did you get started? But then I realized before we even talk about that, we should say, we should talk about, well, even what is a storyteller? And then I realized we should go even a step further from that and say, what is a story? Mm, a delicious question. <laughs> a story. A story is any narrative that we share with other people, whether we do it spoken or uh, written. could even be nonverbal. That's certainly a story. could be the beginning of a great story. Um, without anything being on paper or any words being spoken. We are storytelling animals. That's one of the major things about us as human beings. We are storytelling animals, and we tell stories every single solitary day. It isn't something I do that you don't do. The only thing that's different between the way you tell stories and the way I tell stories is I probably put more thought into it. And usually when I tell people are seated in straight rows, but that's probably not true of you. Yeah. You tell stories across the dining room table. You tell stories at the water cooler. There are loads of stories going on out there in the bar. Anybody who thinks that storytelling is dying in America hasn't been to a bar lately, have they? <laughs> Anytime you tell somebody something about something that happened when they weren't there, you're telling them a story. It has a beginning, a middle, an end, a cast of characters, a plot line, all the stuff that you would study in a great literature class in miniature across the table at your favorite hamburger restaurant. But there's a purpose to it, I guess, for the stories we'll, we you, you work in and the stories that get passed on, they're there's purposes to them or lessons or... Well, sure, there's, as there are many different reasons for telling a story as there are storytellers um, to entertain, to be the center of attention, a long and durable Texas reason for telling stories, um, to educate, to inspire, to move, caution, to caution, to incite, mm. um, just loads and loads of reasons, purposes for telling stories. For thousands of generations, 
we really kept ourselves alive as a species by the stories that we told. Everything we knew was transmitted from one generation to another by word of mouth. I went down by the river and there was a jaguar and I only narrowly escaped. And this is what you do if you see a bear. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good stuff to know if you ever live where a bear might happen to be. Or there are stories that circulate about the places out in the Pacific where the old people knew what they were looking at when they began to see the signs of the tsunami because of the stories that had been passed down, even though it had been generations since anyone had seen one. And they began to tell people to run for higher ground as soon as they saw the water going out. We have to get away from the beach. And they had that knowledge because of the stories that had been told to them by their grandparents who had been told by their grandparents back into time. I don't know how many generations. When we were chatting earlier, um, you, t you mentioned a story about how you learned to uh, a core value over money. <laughs> yes. It was just a, such a simple but a perfect example of the power that a story can have. Yes. I had my first experience of sitting down with a money manager. <laughs> uh, quite an off-putting idea from my point of view. But at one point he said to me, well, you don't, worry about, you don't have to worry at all about that because debt doesn't survive death. Did you all know that? Debt doesn't survive death. If you have any problems, just take out loans, and if you die before they're paid off, it's no big deal. I was absolutely horrified and immediately jumped into my childhood, and I said, I would never, ever renege on something I owed anybody. It's a part of who I am. And I launched right in, in his fancy, expensive office, launched right into a story that I'd been told so many times. Before I was even born, my father was a teacher, an agriculture professor at uh, a boarding school. He borrowed two stallions from a local farmer with the permission of the school. He was going to breed them to the uh, mares that the school owned so that he could improve the stock that the school owned. There was a fire in the barn. My father managed to get the horses out. He entrusted them to my mother and ran back into the burning barn to try to save the mares. He was successful in doing that. My mother was not strong enough to hold the stallions. They were so frightened. They managed to jerk away from her. And as horses will do, they ran back into the burning building and burned to death. My father went to the president of the school and asked him to pay the man the fair market value of the horses that the school had borrowed. And the president of the school chose to say, we didn't borrow them, you did. And we're not responsible and we won't pay. So my father worked a second job for three years to make sure that the man got the fair market value for the horses he had borrowed. Borrow money that you know you won't be able to pay back because you'll die before it comes due? Excuse me? Many of the things that you know about life and how it ought to be lived, you learned at your parents' knee, and a lot of them are things you don't even think about. They go so deep inside you, you don't even think about them being core values. Thank you. I love. You're thank welcome. you for sharing that. I love that You're story. Welcome. Um, so uh, could I say one more line? Absolutely. Sorry to butt in. My father died in the D-Day invasion. And so everything I know about him, I only know because somebody bothered to tell me a story. Everything I know about him is because somebody told me a story. Okay. So I want you to think about how much power storytelling has in your life to keep people alive that will never meet them face to face.
We'll never get to inter interact with them. So, 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 so we we've talked about people who tell stories and why we tell stories. What? How is a how is a storyteller different? Well, I guess that de means uh, depends on what you mean by a storyteller. You know that you know people who are what I would think of as natural-born storytellers. There are probably some of them out there in the bar right now. <laughs> uh, there are people who have a natural gift for narrative and being able to hold other people's attention. But everybody can tell a story. I used to think that Everybody who had language, spoken language, could tell a story. And then I met Peter Cook. He is America's most prominent deaf storyteller. Peter doesn't speak, but that doesn't impair his storytelling ability at all. He signs and tells with his whole body. So some people are professional storytellers and tell for money, just like there are people who are musicians who make money making music. Some people are amateur storytellers. They make a part of their living as storytellers, or they tell because they want to tell. But most of the people in America who are storytellers are probably not going to ever really see any cash from doing that. They do it for the sheer joy of doing it. And then there are always those uh, extraordinary people like Jean and Peggy Helmick Richardson who keep a rugged schedule of telling stories a couple of nights a week, every week, in the places where the most vulnerable people who live among us can be found. If it's the second Tuesday of the month, they're at the battered women's shelter. If it's the third Wednesday, they're at the court-ordered treatment center, etc. Um, they have regular jobs to support their storytelling habit. And from my point of view, those kinds of people are the kind of people who get to get in the express lane when they go to heaven. <laughs> they get to stand under the sign that says eight karmic items or less, stand right <laughs> over here. Maybe you know a few people that you think should be in that line under that eight items or less sign. <laughs> but a storyteller is different than an entertainer. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, a, a, a storyteller's purpose would determine that. If you aren't entertaining, people aren't going to stick around to listen. But maybe you are a storyteller for instructional purposes. Maybe you are telling to teach people something, or maybe you are, uh, I've painted myself into a corner here, I can't think of another example off the top of my head, It'll but you get the idea, it depends on, okay, loads and loads of people in the Metroplex are storytellers because of their religious uh, affiliations. And ministers uh, and preachers. Ministers and preachers and rabbis and uh, imams and teachers of all kinds are often very powerful storytellers. Uh, uh, Jake's is an incredibly powerful storyteller. Yeah. yeah there were, I was just thinking if there were other professions that being a good storyteller was a prerequisite. Law, whoever tells the best story wins. Yeah, law. Business, whoever tells the best story sells, mm -hmm. closes the deal, sells the client. Mm -hmm. um, teachers, Mark Twain said there's nothing wrong with history except the way it's taught. Uh, any really good teacher would want to be a good storyteller because once you've heard a story, you can't unhear it. So it's the very best way to teach anybody anything. Well, on that notion that if you feel something emotionally, you're more likely to remember it. On the nose. It makes a connection. It has a hook. Yeah, It's a hook. So how, how did you first grow to love stories in this way? I can't remember when I didn't love stories. I was lucky enough to grow up in a family where I heard a lot of stories. 
my grandfather was a minister, not the I have this one church that I pastor kind. Here in Texas, just as much as in Appalachia where I grew up, there were circuit riders, and that meant they went from community to community to community. In his heyday, my grandfather pastored about 16 to 18 churches in a month's time, and by the time he finished, it was time to start the circuit again. Uh, people would know that on the third Sunday of the month, he, that's when meeting was going to be, that kind of thing. When people lived in Kentucky with very few roads and very little modes of transportation, and getting around was very difficult, the minister would come from place to place to place, and at the end of doing the marrying and the burying and the preaching, he would go home with somebody in the church and spend the night with their family and hear all the stories from that family. And then he'd get on his horse and ride to the next community, and he'd tell the stories he heard there to his next hosts and collect their stories and go on to the next place. I thought everybody's grandfather knew hundreds of stories because whatever you know when you're little, you think is the way everybody's life is. Yeah. But he... Uh, my uncles were big storytellers of the rock contour variety. It was always about them, and it was always a very big. Well, this is a Texas tradition. It's not just Appalachia. Lying for sport <laughs> is a Texas tradition. And it has been a sport that men usually have, traditionally, it has been a man's sport. Think of all those guys sitting around the front uh, of the gen general store, whittling and spitting and swapping lives. That's uh, a folklore tradition that's deeply ingrained here in Texas. Many, many people who came to Texas came from the Appalachian Mountains. So uh, I imagine they brought that with them when they came. And we still have lying for sport here in Texas, it's it's still quite common, uh, even in places other than the legislature. <laughs> so how did you develop your craft as a storyteller and then ultimately decide that this was something you were going to do as part or all of your living? I went to library school. Dallas Public came to my university on a recruiting trip. I came down here to go to work for Dallas Public Library. I found that storytelling was the part of my job I liked best. Some days it was the only part I liked. So I tried to find ways to spend more time telling stories and less time filing catalog cards. That's how long ago that was. <laughs> okay. Uh, more than, let's see, 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago when I came to Dallas. Um, I went with my old friend Gail Ross, I went to the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee on a continuing education grant from the Dallas Public Library and saw all these people who were making their living as storytellers. And on the way back in the car, Gail and I started saying, we could do that. We could do that. You know, we could do that. And about the time we got to the bridge across the Mississippi River, we could do that turned into, I'll do it if you'll do it. <laughs> I do not think that either of us, the people we were then, would have done it alone. But because we had somebody to hold hands with and jump off the cliff, a la Butch and Sundance. Um, we came back from that great adventure and both resigned from our jobs. Gil was telling the news for KLIF, and I was back at the library, and we decided we would leave our regular jobs and hang out our shingle as storytellers and give ourselves a year to see if we could make it work. And that was 41 years ago. We worked together for about five years as the 12 Moon Storytellers. 
And Gail became deeper and deeper involved in tribal politics. She is the double great-granddaughter of John Ross, who was the principal chief of the Cherokee at the time of the Trail of Tears. And as she got more and more involved in Cherokee culture and Cherokee politics, we sort of drifted apart as tellers and began telling, uh, began solo careers. She lives in Tahlequah now outside the Cherokee capital, and she's an amazing storyteller, but she really focuses on Cherokee folktales, Cherokee culture. So uh, in addition to being a storyteller, you're also a writer. I am. Is, is writing part of, do you, do you write stories, or do you just write about stories and about storytelling? I do both. I have a collection of my own personal stories called Every Day a Holiday. I have uh, written, I have two books out that are about storytelling. Inviting the Wolf In, Thinking About Difficult Stories, is about how to tell those stories that are stuck in your throat, either those that are hard to tell or hard for other people to listen to. From Plot to Narrative is a kind of guidebook for how to build a stronger story to tell or to write. And what I'm working on right now is called Prepare to Scare, and it's all about how to be an effective teller of scary stories. So, yeah, we, we, I'm, I'm, I'm so you're certainly steeped in scary stories right now. Um, <laughs> do, do scary stories have a particular place in the, in the canon, in the the options of stories? I think so. They're among people's favorite kinds of stories. Many people, if you ask them what their favorite kind is, they'd say right off that the ghost stories are what they like best. They have a universal appeal because everybody has something that haunts them. Either sins of omission or sins of commission. Uh, one or the other. All of us are, even little children, are haunted by something. So what are, what are some of the elements of a, a really good scary story? Well, you want believable characters. If the characters aren't believable, people don't invest any kind of emotion in them. If people don't feel strongly about the characters, then they don't care what happens to them. And if they don't care what happens to them, the whole story falls apart. So strong, uh, believable characters. A believable villain is important in a scary story. Um, we want a, a good, strong beginning that catches people's attention. We want some interesting plot and a satisfying conclusion. And in a scary story, a satisfying conclusion may not be a happy ending. It may be quite the opposite of a happy ending. But, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's pretty much what we're looking for. And what's the difference between a, a scary story and a horror story? Well, I think horror is more blood and guts than ghost is. Uh, I don't always focus on the blood and the gore, I think that turns some people off. Instead, I want people to focus on what the character in the story is feeling. And if I can portray that appropriately, then people don't need to see the blood and the gore. They get caught up in the emotion of the characters. Well, and our imagination takes over. Of imagination is the key to everything. Not just storytelling, but to everything. <laughs> when we were talking the other day, I was fascinated to hear you talk about the uh, the archetypal characters in stories and Ooh. how they fulfilled sort of very specific functions. And that that uh, if you were crafting a story and you wanted you wanted to tell this kind of story, you used this monster. Whereas if you wanted to tell this kind of story, you used this monster. And then we talked about it. And I just wanted to share it uh, with folks tonight because I it was very enlightening about monsters and scary stories and just the the archetypal characters in stories in general. 
So take, for example, ghosts. Well, a ghost story at its core is always about thinking the past is more important than the present. You want to think about that? I'll repeat it so you can think about it. A ghost story is always at its core thinking that the past has more power over your life than the present does. And monster stories are about thinking that the future has more power than the present. Monsters are always those nameless, faceless things that are out there somewhere in the dark waiting to get us. And witch stories are all about thinking that somebody else has more power over your life than you do. Because that's what it means to be under a spell. To be enchanted, enthralled. All means giving your personal power over to somebody else. And I know it wouldn't be true of you all, you good shiny looking people out there, but I bet every single one of you can think about somebody you know that is under the spell of someone else in their lives. Their boss, or their mother, or their boyfriend, or their children, or you get the idea. What about vampires? Well, now, vampires... We're going into the PG section of the conversation now. I think vampire stories are often about sex and how we feel about sexuality. One of the important things about vampires is that they suck the life out of their victims. And I have personally known people who have let that happen in their life, let their sexuality suck all of the energy out of them. No focus on anything other than that to the detriment of their careers, their families, their maybe even their spiritual beliefs. We all know people who are emotional vampires. I'm sure that you can think of someone you know that you would think of as an emotional vampire. They suck all of the energy out of the room just by coming into it. And then what about the most used in the past decade or so, zombies? Ah. Uh, it's very interesting that zombie lore has become so popular. But think about what we know about zombies. Not the way they're being portrayed right this minute, but traditionally the way they have been portrayed. They are the undead. They don't have the power of speech other than to be able to grunt. They cannot reproduce. They do not have meaningful work or meaningful relationships because they are part of the undead. And that's a whole lot like how many of our young people feel right now. They feel that they are just sleepwalking through their lives that no one listens to them, that they're not able to communicate with the other people around them, that they have no future. All of those kinds of things. I think you can draw a lot of parallels between what we have traditionally seen as vampire lore and the way teenagers and young adults feel about their lives, many of them. Any other monsters we missed? Any monster suggestions from the audience? Witches. Witches. Witches are about thinking somebody else has more power over your life than you do. That you are under someone else's spell. So how, so how many stories do you know? Do I know? About 400 or so. And how many are in your normal repertory? At a That's given a really time? different number because one of the things I would want to say is I grew up in eastern Kentucky and eastern Tennessee at the head of the holler in the late 40s and, and, the, late and the beginning of the 1950s. 
people ask me how many stories I know, they don't ever ask how many would you tell in a public place. That's a different number altogether. As people change, and their consciousness changes, the stories that they tell change. So if a story is being told, a story is still being told, it's meeting some need that humans feel that they have. And when people don't feel that need, the story dies a fairly natural death, not because anybody stomps it out, but because people simply cease to be interested in it, and it dies, doesn't get passed on. A lot of the stories that I heard as a child were racist, sexist, uh, dealt with the dealt viciously with the treatment of the other or those who were handicapped. Um, and there isn't any reason to want to perpetuate those stories. So why do we tell old stories? Well, for most of them, they aren't good because they're old. They're old because they're good. We've been telling the story of the fall of Troy, <laughs> I mean, for, for quite a while now, and nobody's bored by it. It's still of value, still of interest. The most recent Hollywood movie didn't fare very well, but I think the reason it didn't is because the men in the story we're prettier than Helen of Troy. It's hard to sell that story when the men are so beautiful. Brad Pitt. Um, can't think of who else was in it. I can't think of the names of the other actors who were in it, but oh, Orlando Bloom, um, Eric. Exactly. They were a whole lot prettier than Helen Troy was. So it was really kind of hard to make it work. So that takes away from the believability uh -huh. of the characters. The believability of the characters. And they completely left out, ignored, erased the character of Cassandra, mm -hmm. who the prophetess, who knows the truth and speaks the truth, but no one ever believes her, sort of the quintessential position of womankind throughout history. Hey, I'm over here and I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, hush. Go sit down. Be a good girl. Yeah. So, um, without Cassandra, and because the men were prettier than Helen was, the movie didn't work very well. But the storyline has been on the hit parade since how many years B.C.? I'm not quite sure, but about the time, but uh, maybe certainly more than 3,000 years. So you certainly learned stories from your extended family. I and did. From at your mother's knee, as you said. Um, and, and I think, I mean, I remember a certain amount of that um, growing up. But, uh, I mean, nowadays it seems that kids are more likely to be sitting on the couch with their phone rather than sitting next to their mother or grandmother or aunt's uh, rocking chair, um, hearing those stories, and the same at the dinner table. Um, so how, is it, is it that phones have replaced our extended family? How is it that you're seeing people pass on these very important life lessons? On many levels, uh, for many people, the telephone has become the extent, the cell phone has become the extended family, which is very unfortunate. Uh, one of the things that's really important about story is it is the way we learn empathy. It is the way we learn to care about other people and what happens to them. Story is the way we learn what qualities are valued by our culture and 
I have some concerns about the fact that young people are not hearing storytelling as they are growing up because they're not having the opportunity to develop the kind of empathy that they need to be uh, adults in a democracy. We need people who go to the polls to vote who can imagine the effect of their behavior on other people's lives. Empathy is based on the ability to imagine the effect of my behavior on your life. And we see things on television these days and get them on our phones, stories that maybe make us think that something's missing in young people. How could that have happened? How could that, how could they have done that? Or how could they have allowed that to happen? In fact, stories about good sportsmanship or people who are helpful to, young people who are helpful to one another make the morning news these days because they're news. There's a reason they're showing them to you. It's news. What isn't news is people not caring, people bullying and tormenting each other, people cheating and feeling proud of the fact that they cheated because they got away with it. We can't build a functioning democracy unless the people, all of the people, have the opportunity to try to develop empathy for one another and their situations. I live in a predominantly blue-collar neighborhood south of Interstate 30. The people I've met face-to-face -face in my neighborhood I think are probably pretty nice people. And then I subscribed to the neighborhood online sort of newsletter thing and discovered that I don't like my neighbors, and we don't have the same values, and that they're way, way more interested in taking care of any dog that gets lost than they are the people in the community that are lost, the people in the community that need help. They are contemptuous of people who are poor or in need, but man, they would go the last mile to find and get home a dog. <laughs> I find that really hard to understand. Don't tell them I said that. <laughs> so how can, I mean, how can we, how can we put more quality stories into our lives? How can we either learn to be better communicators or tellers, or how can we enrich our lives or our children's lives or our grandchildren's lives with stories. Put some thought into it. What we pay attention to multiplies and grows. If you think about story, you're going to see them everywhere you go. You're going to see that you swim in an ocean of stories all the time. That they're out there waiting for you to pass them on. Old traditional stories things that have happened to you, things that happened in your family, things that were passed down to you, brand new things that you just now experienced at the grocery store this week. Give thought to what you tell. Think about how you're going to tell it for the maximum amount of entertainment or the maximum amount of instruction or the maximum amount of pathos. Factual information doesn't move people. Not really. Stories are what move people. If we change the stories that we tell and focus our attention on, we could change our culture quickly. Quickly. Uh, so think about the story. Before you tell it, tell it to yourself. So you can think about whether or not you can tell it effectively. Tell it while you're taking your shower to yourself, in your head. This happened, that happened, that happened. 
Well, what could I say about that first thing, the first thing that happened that would be kind of attention getting? Yeah, I won't tell the 15 minutes it would take to lead up to it. I'm going to tell just this part. I don't need that or that. I do need this for people to understand what happened. Make a set of pictures in your head. Writers use them, storyboards, one picture for each thing that happens. You don't have to sit down and draw them out. Just make mental pictures. Black, 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 black. This happened, that happened, that happened, so that they could live happily ever after. I love to hear stories about sportsmanship. My grandson keeps me informed about them. Sports are his life. He's on the staff at Rice University. And some of our best conversations are him telling me about something he saw, something he witnessed, because he knows how much I love to hear about people being good sports. Maybe you saw the story on TV about the softball player, two girls teams playing for the championship up in the Northwest. You, the people in the stands could hear the young woman's knee go out when she rounded second base. The noise was that loud. You could hear, and you could hear people gasp. And some of her teammates gathered and they asked the umpire if they could carry her to home plate because she had hit a home run. Never in her college career had she had a home run and she was a graduating senior. The umpire said they couldn't touch her, it would be against the rules. They had to stand there and wait for the ambulance. The captain of the opposing team asked if they could touch her. And when the umpire said, well, there's nothing in the rules about that, they picked her up and carried her around to each of the bases so that she could have her home run. I love stories like that. I think they move me deeply. Uh, I love hearing them more than I like hearing about people cheating at sports. If we change the focus of what we tell, our culture will change as a result. I'm convinced of that. We have some time for questions from the audience. Any questions out here? Tomorrow, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Anyone can go and bring 40 or 50 of their closest friends. Which library is this? <laughs> Central Library. I don't have the address in my head. What is the address? It's right up on, on Arapaho. On Arapaho. Right. It's the building that looks like a library. <laughs> they all kind of look alike. Do you know the time? Eleven thirty. Eleven thirty. And just for, for, for your, uh, if, after you ask your question, I'll repeat it so we get it onto the podcast. That, any others over There's here? A question. Yes. What was your favorite story to tell Ooh, children? To tell at the children. Hmm. Probably Jack in the Haunted House. The story about all the body parts falling down the chimney and reassembling themselves. I'm real fond of that one. Um, I love to tell the little ones. Stories that have lots of audience participation in them. Places where they can join in and things that have chants and jingles and rhymes and that sort of thing. They have lots of energy, so you might as well give them a place to put it. <laughs> uh, I really love One My Darling Come to Mama, which is the Haitian version of the Cinderella story. I like uh, 
I be lying if I didn't say every story I tell is a story I love because I <laughs> wouldn't tell them if I didn't love them. One more question. Over here, sir. some rough times. Yeah. And is it a, a coincidence or an accident that areas like that, and Appalachia is not the only area, but it, it seems like storytellers and stories tend to come from communities that have had adversity. Is is that true or is that just my false impression? No, I, I think there's a certain amount of truth in that. I think adversity breeds good storytelling. Uh, people are drawn together to keep their family together and in keeping their family together they tend to tell stories about things that happened in the past people who over overcame adversity people who got through financial difficulty uh, and I think the in times that are really difficult, people are drawn to tell stories about their troubles, uh, about how bad things they things are, and that's almost always countered by people from a former generation going, "Oh yeah, well listen to listen to this," you know, the old. Uh, I had to walk to school in the snow and it was uphill both ways. Uh, you know how that goes. Uh, it would seem that any religious text would, would have that same... Exactly. Of any world religion would have yes. that same form and function. Yes. When I moved here from Dallas, I was astounded by how wealthy people were and how little they were aware of that. I I couldn't imagine that they didn't know that, but I had lots and lots of experiences that told me that they didn't know that at all. I was telling in South Lake not terribly long ago, two children who live in the same on the same block with people who play for the Dallas Cowboys or the Mavericks or yeah, fourth graders. And they all thought they were poor. Had so little idea about where they live in relationship to the rest of the world that they were all, always complaining about how poor they were. I was astounded. And I got in big trouble <laughs> at the school for telling them that they were rich. I asked them if any of their teachers lived in the neighborhood they live in, and they all said no. I said, where do your teachers live? We don't know. Why do they live there? Why don't they live here near the school? Wouldn't it be more convenient to live near the school? Well, they could see the sense in that. They don't live near the school because they can't afford the houses in this neighborhood. How much money do you think your father and mother make every year? They had no idea. None, yeah. If you were alive in America today, you have, 90, you have more than 95% of ever, people who have ever lived on the planet just because you're an American. 95% more than any people who've ever lived before. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. So we'll, uh, we'll end the evening in our normal airtime tradition with our top ten short questions. All right. <laughs> These are just either ors or short answers. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Um, number one, pie or cake? Cake. Number two, iced tea or hot tea? Iced tea. <laughs> number three, Edgar Allan Poe or Washington Irving? Edgar Allan Poe. Number four, Stephen King or Agatha Christie? Stephen King. Number five, Elvis or the Beatles? Chuck Berry. <laughs> the write-in candidate. Uh, number six. <laughs> well, the person who, never mind. That's, we could go off on that. <laughs> Where number do you think six. those guys got that? 
Uh, Good point. Number six, telling a story in the rain or telling a story in the blazing sun? In the rain. Number seven, a storyteller you wish you had had the chance to meet? Homer. Number eight, your favorite animal character? Rare rabbit. Number nine, bitter and intriguing or sweet and reassuring? Intriguing. And number 10, the greatest fairy tale of all time? Like meatloaf salt. Very well. Please, please, everyone, help me thank Miss Elizabeth Ellis. And Pat, hope to see you at the library tomorrow. Miss Pat Fox will take us out and tell us about next month. And I'll repeat that tomorrow at Richardson Public Library up on Arapaho and Central at eleven thirty to twelve thirty, Elizabeth will be telling stories. So um, our Richardson Storytelling Festival, which we have done once before, will also continue on February 22nd. And you can check our website for more information on that. Next, next month, March 10th, we'll be interviewing Christian Donaldson, who is a graphic novelist. The movie is Akira. Akira is a 1988 I have to read this because it's so detailed. Japanese animated post-apocalyptic cyberpunk film directed by Koroshiro Otorno. Otomo. And Christian Donaldson is um, the one who drew the cover for the original comic book of Dr. Horrible, if you remember that wonderful um, YouTube movie. Thank you so much for attending this time, and we look forward to seeing you again.